Hey you, come here. I want to tell you something. Do you ever want to be who they want a podcast? Then all you need is Anchor. It's the easiest way to start, and it's free. It has access to tools right at your fingertips. Plus, Anchor does the distribution work for you. You heard me, for you. So all you have to do is download, record, and upload. That's simple. Join anchor.fm today and get to podcasting. Mwah. Yo, 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 podcast land. It's the Who They Want Misfits, the tag team duo of Mr. Dazzy and DJ Big Dog, along with our special guest for this special show. We got Mr. Trey Styles, the voice of the people, of the black voices of the people. Here to talk about growing up in Detroit and his memoir, Black Boy Rise. Let the show begin. How you doing, brother? I'm going good. I'm doing good, brother. Thanks for having me on your show. I really appreciate you for allowing me to be on your platform. No doubt, man. We got to look out for our people, you know, and help build that bridge of connections, no matter how far or how near. We just got to continue to support each other. Absolutely. So why don't you tell us a little bit where you want to start from? We want to discuss the memoir first, or you want to dive into the Detroit, Detroit. lifestyle? Whichever one works for you, I'm down. Let's dive into this Detroit thing, because it seems like there's something you want to address about Detroit. Let's see what you okay. <laughs> well, well, Detroit, uh, well, I'll say number one, you know, it's my city. I love my hometown. And uh, I know that the city of Detroit, uh, we have had a lot of a lot of problems for quite some time. I say first and foremost, because we were known as the automobile capital of the world. But of course, my city focuses on one industry. And we all know that you never want to put all your, your eggs in one basket. Because we put all your eggs in one basket, a lot of times, oftentimes, if that plan or whatever that endeavor is fails, you know, you be kind of uh, be kind of be on your butt for a minute. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of like the, that's kind of what happened to my hometown compared to other places, you know, in like the Midwest and the North or, the, you know, the industrial, the industrial business, you know, type of thing. So with Detroit, we focus on one industry, number one, like what's the auto, automobile industry. And what happened in our city is when we have what you call white flight, a lot of, you know, white people who left Detroit left African-Americans and the inner cities, uh, places like Detroit, but you know, we're talking about Detroit. They left us there. And a lot of times, you know, we were employees, we weren't employers. We didn't own any of the businesses in our communities like that. As far as like the major industries like Chrysler, Ford and GM, where a lot of people hear about in Detroit. And so what happens is you, you, you left uh, black Americans and the crumbling infrastructure and when you leave us with a crumbling infrastructure, a lot of people had to find different ways to survive in the city of Detroit. And as time went on, that's when the underground economy became, you know, a thing, you know, the drugs, you know, uh, the prostitution, people just getting to how they live. Cause you know, one thing people are gonna do, people are not just gonna lay, out, lay down and die. People are gonna survive by any means. That's the first law of human nature, you know, uh, survival, you know, uh, Self-preservation is the first law of human nature. Everybody's just not gonna just die and just 
just commits no suicide. That's not gonna happen. That really goes against our nature in many respects, just among human beings in general. Right. So what happened with Detroit focusing on that one industry, the auto industry started to decline even even uh, before white flight, it started to decline. You know, things started to change. You know, the economy started to change. And you have the crumbling infrastructure we inherited. So we're struggling to survive. So then you got, you know, people, you know, preying on people to survive. And I was born in 1989 in Detroit, Michigan. And in, 18, in 1989, excuse me, in Detroit, Michigan, that was the height of the crack epidemic. So I was born right into it. I don't know what life was like before crack. All I can do is read about it or hear my mother or the people that's older than me talk about it. But I was born right into that, you know, the height of the crack epidemic. So at, at that time, 89, the crack was the number one, number one employer of African-American men in the city of Detroit. And of course it was across the, you know, the nation in many respects, but especially in our city, because we focus on one industry primarily well, as other cities, like uh, even though where we at as black people, we always we always suffer. We always get into the the I mean the short end of the stick because we don't really control our economy. But what hurt us in Detroit so much because we was focusing on one industry so heavily. Well, as other cities, like even Chicago, we know what black Chicago is like the same thing going on. But the thing is about those cities, they diversified their economy. We focus on one industry. So you had you know me growing up in that era. I would say this Detroit. I know my city has a like a bad reputation, like around the nation, like for being violent and things like that. But contrary to popular opinion, a lot of great people come up out of Detroit and a lot of great things are going on in Detroit. It's, it's thousands of people that go out every day and try to make my city a, a better place. But it is a tough place to grow up in. I will say that growing up uh, in my family, you know, it was it was a lot of trouble. I was exposed to almost anything uh, I had People in my family own drugs. I have people in my family uh, that sold drugs. People that went to prison. I saw. So I, I seen it. I pretty much seen it all growing up here. And you know, what when I was growing up, I still had some support. You know, I had my, a good mother and her mother and, and my paternal grandmother. So I had some people that was there for me. But you know, a lot of times when we grow, up, we do the best with what we know how to do. You know, so sometimes our best may be the best we can give, but it may not be enough for us to really flourish in the environment that we're coming up in. So I didn't have a lot of support. I didn't have like the most positive male role models around me. Uh, excuse me. Well, I didn't have a lot of the most positive male role models around me coming up in Detroit. And so early on in my life, I would say like up to my preteen years, I, it could have went either way for me. But uh, when I was age 14, I uh, witnessed a, a fatal shooting that was very close to home and I had to go to trial, you know, and uh, that changed the whole trajectory of my life right there. Because, you know, imagine going to trial and the people family there, your family there and everybody's grabbing each other. And, you know, you know, you know how that goes with the vendettas things and people are about retaliation. So it put me in a deep seated depression. I was paranoid to go paranoid I didn't want, I was scared to go anywhere because I thought people would come back on me even though I wasn't the, the one who, who who did it but I was around it and it was it was family it was you know it was very close to home but I had to go to that trial and and so for me I was looking for some kind of escape 
I was suicidal, but only three things stopped me from committing suicide. One, I was afraid to do it. Two, I didn't want to leave my mom. And three, I was brought to believe that if you commit suicide, that you would go to hell at that time. So those are three, those are three things that stopped me from you know, taking myself out. But in the process of doing that, I was looking for some form of an escape. So I, I, my escape came when I saw the Malcolm X movie, you know, directed by Spike Lee. And I uh, saw the movie and it inspired me. And I remember uh, in the movie, Malcolm X, you know, played by Denzel, looked at the word black in the dictionary. And I saw a black man in the dictionary. And that was just so interesting to me. And I pick up a dictionary and I look at the word black uh, and saw what it meant now. And it hadn't changed. How, how we would describe it was like, basically like we were dirty and we were, uh, you know, disgusting basically. And I was like, wow. And that inspired me and I wanted to learn more about Malcolm X. So I read every book I could find on Malcolm X. And I used Malcolm X as a rooter for manhood and for black manhood in particular. So what that helped me do is it, it made me strive to be greater. It helped my discipline because I tried to model myself out them. Because, you know, we're young and we model our, envir our environment. But for some reason, something clicked on me. I didn't want to be like the guys in my family. You know, I don't want to be like the guys in my neighborhood, a lot of them, and not talking down on any of them, but it's just what they were doing in life. I wanted something different. You know, I was different from anybody that was around me. You know, I, was, I was a pariah. And so that helped me to get my discipline and my focus on. But learning about Malcolm X and getting that type of discipline as a young teenager made me like an outcast amongst my peers because the things I wanted to talk about, they didn't care about. The things I wanted to talk about, even with my family, the older people in the family, they didn't, they couldn't really relate to me. They didn't want to hear it. I didn't have nobody I could really talk to. So sometimes I, I just felt like, man, I was I was alone in the world. But that's what got me strength. That's what kept me strong. That's what got me here with you today. And from there, you know, uh, learning about uh, Malcolm X and reading every book on Black history, on self-development, I became a voracious reader, which I still am today. Excuse me. But, and so that was, that's what got me through it. Like, uh, reading and learning about Malcolm and I started writing raps and that my creative spirit came in. I started writing poetry and I remember uh, just just uh, really working hard to be a better person. And I grew up in a very, a very toxic environment. When I was 17, my uncle told me that I was gay just because I read books. That's where I'm coming from. You know? So wow. yes, yeah, yeah, like that. And I mean, uh, and I never talked down on my mom because that's my heart. She's always supported me. But I remember when she gave me some money for my birthday when I was 14, 15 years old. And I went to this Truth Bookstore. Truth Bookstore was a, a, a African-centered bookstore located right outside of Detroit, Michigan, in Southfield, Michigan. And I went to the mall and I got books and I came home. Mama said, what'd you get for your birthday? And I said, I got these books. And she looked at me like, like what? You want to got some books? She looked at me like I was crazy. Like, she didn't understand that, you know, because... Well, nobody in our family was reading, you know, nobody in our community really was on what I was on. So I was like, I was, I was different from a lot of people that was around me. And the good thing about that is that it really helped me get through. I, mean, I went through a lot of adversity in high school. I was in high school. I had a, a, a guy pull a, a gun on me. You know, I was my senior year. I was walking up the, the steps. He just pushed me. I knocked his hand down. We stood face to face. He, uh, and I said, what? You know, he didn't want to do nothing. It was just me and him. But then I walked the steps. I noticed his friends was coming. So I knew it was going to go down. So I went upstairs and get prepared. And I was a good kid by this time. I wouldn't bother nobody. For it. it was been this way for years. But the weird thing about what happened on that day is that that happened four years on the exact day that that incident happened with uh, my family being involved, in, you know, in, in the fatal shoot. 
Like literally four years later on that exact same day. So I always felt like I had a strong, yeah, well, I always felt like I had a strong spirit around me and I didn't understand that. And that was that happened. So he pulled a gun on me and I didn't back down. I said put a gun down, but then how the school was made. The guy one guy came from Ron there. I didn't see them focusing on them. So he came and hit me. And you know, they they rush you ain't too much you can do but try to uh, but cover up. <laughs> yeah. So I, I tried I tried to grab one guy foot. I tried to grab one guy foot to get some kind of revenge, but <laughs> <laughs> but you got away. <laughs> I'm sorry, you know. Nah, I'm you gotta be. You ain't just taking me out. I'm taking some victory out of this. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm, I gotta get some kind of wins, but you know, and that happened, man. It, it just changed. Like my 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 12th grade year was going so good, but I remember a police officer coming there. He said, he said, Trey, look at it, man. Don't drop out of high school, man. You held your home, man. Don't drop out. They the punks. They the cowards, man. When they jump to you, all you can do is cover up. Ain't nothing you can do. And I still remember that guy, you know. And that, just from saying it to me, that made me feel good because my pride was hurt. And it took a lot for me not to shed tears, man, because you know, I'm still was a young man. I just turned 18. And so from there, I went to – mama wanted me to go to uh, press charges, but I couldn't – but she she thought she could press him, but I had to press him because I was 18, and I decided not to. And, you know, because the environment was coming from me on, like, no snitch, no punk. And so I, I, I couldn't do that and all that. So uh, that was that was just a tough time. And, and so I, I made it through there. I had to go back to the high school, and I – Heard people saying that's the boy, uh, that's the boy that got jumped. And I was a low key kid, so people didn't know me. But when they said that's the boy that got jumped, everybody looks at you. So I went back to that school and I'm like, oh man. I'm inside, I'm wearing a straight, I'm wearing a straight face, but inside I'm like, oh man, dang. You know what I'm saying? Reputation now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, and then everybody, and then this girl I like, the girl I thought was so cute in school, she came over uh, to me when she found out, she said, why they jump you? <laughs> she says, I said, I don't know. She said, I don't know why they jump me. She said, you a punk? I said, no, I'm not a punk. It's just five or six of them. And all that. She's like, I'll say, just whooped your A. I was like, I was like, I was like, whatever. In my mind, I was thinking, like, man, would this lady please get out of my face? <laughs> you know but you know, it, it was a lot, man. So I had to deal with a lot of that uh, pressure to get to like those 18 years of, you know, growing up in the city of Detroit. And I made it out of there. And from there, I went to, uh, to college. You know, I graduated uh, undergrad. And I, was, I was the first male in my family to graduate from high school, too. And I graduated from college. Appreciate that, brother. And I graduated from college and got a degree in political science. I was going to be a lawyer, but I decided I didn't want to be a lawyer. So I went on to grad school and I got my uh, degree in uh, public administration. I got a master's in public administration. From there, I went to be a youth counselor. From, from there, I went to be a financial aid officer at Wayne State University. It's a university in Midtown, Detroit. That's where I graduated from. And I started my podcast, wrote my book. And, you know, that's what I've been doing lately, just sharing uh, my story with a lot of a lot of our people all around because I, I know I can make it through. And I dealt with a lot of adversity that these young men especially can make it through. And our young, our young women too, but especially mm -hmm. our young men. You know, so I just want to make it clear. I care about, I care about both. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> make it clear. You know, but I just wanted to, you know, especially these young men, because I, I know what I went through and I know that it could have went either way at one point in my life because that peer pressure is a lot, a lot to deal with. Yeah, but that's what kind of was like growing up in, in the city of Detroit for me. But at the same time, like I said, it still was love there. You know, it was just a, it's just a, it's just gritty at times. You know, it's like, it's the, you know, you got the good, the bad and the ugly. And then it's, sometimes you ain't got to be involved in nothing for, you know, to be involved in something. You know, you know, it ain't like when you go out, you know, you know how it is when we're from the hood. You ain't got to go out and it ain't like we go out every day and somebody getting shot down like that, no. 
what I saw is still rare in Detroit. What I saw, it was rare to actually see somebody like actually fatally, fatally shot like as as a as a teenager. Now don't get me wrong. Now there's been times when in the city where you would see yellow tape and somebody would be out there laying down and people from the neighborhood would come out. That's one thing about saying, but actually to see it, like actually witness it, that's still rare, you know. Mm-hmm. And then at that young age, it's a dramatic yeah. experience that, you know, oh, very. probably still get chills from to this day just because of psychologically what it's done yes. to you at that young stage. So I salute right. you for being able to testify on oh, that yeah. experience. Oh yeah, oh this that definitely was a uh, very very traumatic. I mean, it was that was the that was the darkest time of my life, man. I, I didn't even add back that I got so low that I had to go to a mental institution for five days, because even though I was learning, uh, the knowledge itself, it still wasn't enough to fight fight those demons off. And I went there for five days, and I was in that uh, that place, and you know, I remember my mom dropping me off there, and I saw her tears in her eyes when she was walking away. That's the first time we've ever really been separated like that, and uh, I, I mean, I, it, that, that made me feel real low, and I, you know, that that hurt me too. I ain't gonna lie, so that's the first time, and I, I made a vow to myself when I was, I said I would never get that low again, and thankfully I never got that low again. I, I didn't dealt with a lot of stuff since then. Uh, people, in my family being murdered. I done had like six people, in my family get murdered. You know, to be quite honest with you, uh, I didn't experience it from every angle. You know, as people I was close to, you know, some of my look, my cousins, that well, these kids, you know, it's kind of like, I never thought that this person wouldn't be here. This person would never even live to see 30. They gone, you know, and I'm just like, it's like, wow. So it's it's a lot of stuff I experienced, but it's a lot of good too, like to be able to write a book and some of your family members support you, to be able to do a podcast, people support you, you know, to be able to tell my story mm-hmm. and people coming like, I respect you. And even people who, who talked down on me as a kid, like my uncle before he passed away, he told me he was proud of me. The one that told me I was gay for because I read books. He told me he was proud of me. He's like, he's like, I'm damn proud of you, man. You doing stuff we didn't even know you was doing. And I had a lot of people who's, who in school maybe they thought the when I was in school doing my thing thought I was weird or whatever. They come saying like, man, you was the smart one and all that. So that that's the redeeming thing. That's the redeeming thing about it. And, I, and I'm just, I'm just thankful for to be here to really tell tell my story because I, mean, I saw it's a lot of people that ain't even here no more. And it, it, sometimes it, it, it's like survival's remorse in a way. You just like, man, like I'm, I'm, I didn't, I'm, I didn't came a long ways, but I just wish some of my people could be here to see me doing this stuff. But that was like what it was like for me growing up in Detroit. You know, I, I experienced the good, the bad, and the ugly, good times and bad times. But I'm proud to be from that city, and it's proud to still live here because that's what that's what made me. Uh, that's what made me tough. Like built my fortitude. You know, and of course, if I had kids, I wouldn't want them exposed to what I was exposed to at all. But at the same time, I want them to know something about the environment that I come from. You know, I want them to know that everything ain't all good. You know, everything ain't all, you know, everybody ain't nice. Everybody don't mean well. You know, you, you want them to have book knowledge and street knowledge. And not street knowledge in the sense of talking about, oh, you got to know how much this costs as far as drugs, how much this costs? No, no, I'm talking about as far as common sense. There you, you know, go. you know. So, so that's what it was like for me growing up in Detroit. You know. Absolutely. I have a question. Um, so, with going through everything you've gone through in your firsthand and having to kind of learn your experiences and that developing the person you are today. If you could go back in time, would you change those experiences or 
like would you what would you change if you could or would you keep everything the same because that's what made you the successful person you are now mm. that's, a, that's a very very good question right there because it's like what happened to me was the the gift and the curse you know so it's like if that hadn't happened to me I mean I was always kind of a little studious like to read like as a little kid, but I really took it to a whole nother level when that happened. I would say, sister, I would say, I, I, I wouldn't change it. I wouldn't change it. Because that is what made me who I am. And that is what made me develop the discipline I had. So I, I, I wouldn't change it because I think it has made me better. It has made me more, a, more of a focused person. It has made me able to deal with, deal with peer pressure and really be secure in myself enough to share my pain with the world and to talk about my flaws. And if that hadn't happened, I probably would be like many other brothers that's around here like who, who walk around with the hard exterior acting like they got everything together and they really don't. I'd be like a lot of us people period walk around like we got everything together, but we really dying inside. Mm-hmm. You know, so, and I feel good I can share my pain and share my story. I don't care about people. They say, oh, you soft because you, say you cried before or you got your heart broke before. I'm willing to share all these things. That's what I do on my podcast. I share this thing I talk about when I got my heart broke. I'm honest about it. I talk about, uh, you know, being played. I can talk about when I shed tears. Talk about my me wanting my father to be there and he wasn't there for me. You know, he left me on the steps one day crying when I was a little kid. You know, and I wanted, I wanted him to, to love me and not being there. So I'm I'm thankful for everything I went through because it just it just makes me able to be secure enough to just share everything I went through with the world and knowing that I'm not perfect and that I'm not gonna that I'm not that I'm gonna make mistakes because I'm human but I'm gonna make new kind of mistakes I'm not gonna make the mistakes of the people that came before me because when you know better you do better so no, I wouldn't change it because as hard as it was as tough as it was it, it's what made me uh, who I am right. Well, I commend you for one about being so open about your experiences and also, you know, talking about mental health and, you know, admitting that, hey, I had to go get help, which if anyone knows that have ever been to one of those places, sometimes that's the hardest place to go when you are that low, because it's almost like going to a jail. They want to take your shoelaces. Like you don't have your own freedoms. You're in there with other people who Lord knows what brought them there and where they are. And so it's it that in itself is an experience. Um, but to be so open with that and say, hey, sometimes you get to a point where you have to get help because you are so low. And, and you know, that's one of the things that isn't discussed amongst our community enough and it's always stigmatized. It's like, oh, you have depression. Oh, something wrong with you. No, no. Maybe if you talk about that you had depression, I might feel comfortable talking with you and we can help each other grow versus always pointing out differences and bringing each other down. So I definitely commit you there. I definitely, I definitely appreciate that. And I think that's so true what you're saying because the stigma of mental illness in our community is affects black men and black women you know because sometimes black women 
people get sucked up into trying to be the strong black woman thinking, oh, I can handle everything. You know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't cry. I can handle everything. I don't need this. I don't need that. And the brothers, we get in the same way thinking, I'm a man. I don't need nobody to talk to me about my problems. I can just deal with it. I remember Tupac said his uh, son, keep your head up. He said, it's too many things for you to deal with. You dying inside, but outside you're looking fearless. And I always, I always remember that because that's, that's just, that, that that's our story. Now he's talking about the sisters because, you know, it was keep your head up. But that applies to the brothers too. Because we, we, a lot of us, like, both of us, like, we we, we got this this image we all, we try to keep up. Oh, I'm a strong black woman. I'm a, I'm a brother. I don't need this, all that. But we need help. And I can tell you from a man, uh, being a man that, we want to be men, black men in particular. We, we want to be loved. We want to be cared about too. You know, we want to feel. We want some. We want somebody that's really down for us. But a lot of us, like a lot of y'all, we've been hurt because a lot of us hurt people. Hurt people. We just, you know, a lot of us just thrive off hurting one another, and that we don't feel like we can really open up and really trust anybody. And that's why people just suffering in silence and and, and dying in silence. And people are like, I never knew this person was happening. A couple of years ago here in Detroit, it was it was an event happening at the Riverwalk. At our Riverwalk here, it was this uh this uh, sister. She was a uh, 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 real depressed, real depressed about something. I forgot exact. I forgot the particulars, but it was. And she she jumped in the water, and and drowned herself. And it was talked about all over the city. Like she just jumped. I, I forgot. I don't know if it was depression or some. She was scared to come out about to her family or something, but she she jumped in the, the the river, in the Detroit River, and they was talking about the Riverwalk, and and drowned herself. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like, like wow, you know what I mean? And if we look at that and say, okay, that's the instant suicide, but it's you got the slow suicide too. You got some of us who be on drugs our whole life, which is, you know, alcoholics our whole life and not moving forward. Not doing, not progressing, not trying to deal with our problems in a, a healthier way, and we die. We commit suicide too, just like a slow suicide. Hers was just instant, but it's I, it's so important because I mean, I like I'm, I'm in therapy now, and I find it I find it very, very, very rewarding. You know, I think I'd say some of us think we could use therapy for life, and I think it, I think some of us need it just based on what we've been through in our life. You know, because it takes, you know, it, it could be an incident happen to you just one day out of your life, and that can take years and years for you to really come to grips with that because it could be that traumatic. So no, I, I definitely agree with you on that. We need to deal with that stigma because we need help, you know, and don't nobody make it alone. And just because you need help does not make you weak. It doesn't make you soft. Or just because you need people, it just, make, it just makes you human. Whether you're a man or a woman, you're just human beings. And human beings, we need each other. Right. I mean, that saying it takes a village, like it doesn't just stop when you're a kid. Like mm-hmm. even as an adult, we still need some kind of guidance, some kind of companionship, something. You have to have someone to vent to or you talk do. to, some kind of interaction. So it, that's so true. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Powerful messages in this whole thing. Like, that's a lot. And then for you to be ironic for the moment of me being me, like having the name. Turn Trey that down, Delala, because I am. Think about the character Trey Styles from Boys in the Hood. You both, you know, some similarities are drawn there where you grow up in this rough patch of a neighborhood in the mm-hmm. city. And you experience, even he, you know, just to talk about the fictional character, even he experienced traumatic experiences as a child that growing up he still was constantly involved in living growing up mm-hmm. and then he witnessed his best friend get killed his child friend get killed and 
instead of him having that twisted mind of I'm going to go murder them because they murdered my friend, his mind changed. Mm-hmm. Like, this ain't for me. Like this bad boy image is not me, regardless of how angry and emotional state I'm in. I'm not going to be that brother to take another brother out like that. But, yeah. you know, you don't find too many people with your characteristics in real life that say, I want to make a difference in this world. You know, I want, I don't want to be a thug. I don't want to be, you know, a product of my environment, just to say it like that. Absolutely. We got to be, we got to be better than our environment for sure. You know, cause you know, uh, you know, uh, we got to be those, we got to get, we need more of those roses growing from the concrete. And yeah. we also, like sister said, it, it takes a village. We got to all play a part in it because you can't expect people to want to give back to a community if they don't feel like the community invested in them. Like, I, I know it's like, I always felt like I was in that middle group of kids. And when I was in high school, I, I always thought that they focused so much on the kids that was always in trouble or the kids that was doing super well, they forgot about that middle group of kids. Those yeah. kids that who were, uh, who were coming to school, who, who had drug addicts in their family, who had alcoholics in their family, who had drug dealers in their family, people who had been murdered, anything you could think of. And despite that happening, they still was coming to school. They wasn't bothering nobody. They was doing their work and still trying to make it through. But those kids, sometimes what happens is they get frustrated because they don't get support. They graduate high school and nobody's supporting them. I'm coming for, from a family where people will, will get funds together to help some of my people that's, that's in and out of jail, you know, or, or going to prison or people who having babies and not really taking care of the kids like they're supposed to. But you got me and I'm the kid who's, who's trying to go to college, who's trying to do something positive. My car break down. Nobody give me no money to try to help me get my car. Okay, he's the kid and I finally doing something. No, nobody's investing in me trying to help me. Or okay, he needs a book, you know, for college. Nobody trying to do that, like really, but my mom, you know. So, and then those kids would be the ones that if they don't want to get back, you call them Uncle Toms, you call them uh, Aunt Thomasina, you call them sell out. But then you want them to invest in a community when the community ain't investing them. You know, so you, you lose you lose a lot of those kids. And some of those kids, when they get to graduate high school, people are like, oh, what happened to him? Like, he ended up there. He was such a good kid. Yeah, he was such a good kid. But sometimes they get frustrated because they feel like, oh, who's supporting me? Like, what's the purpose of it all? If ain't nobody going to appreciate me, validate me, or support me. But I see you giving all the attention to the ones that are doing negative things. So, mm-hmm. like, I'm a, maybe I should act out like them. That's kind of like you got a little kid that you only acknowledge them when they're doing something bad. They're gonna say, okay, maybe I should do something, keep doing this bad. It's only this kind of attention I can get. Maybe a sick love is all I know. Well, that's when they're doing something good, uh, nobody says anything. So it, it's just like you lose a lot of those kids when you don't invest in those kids. And I, and I think like I see a lot of young brothers and little sisters like me, like they're going through it all. And we need to support those kids who are going through it, just like those other kids that go through it, but they ain't trying to hurt nobody. They ain't trying to, you know do anybody wrong they're just trying to make it and keep their nose clean like not throwing shade at nobody because i know our lives our lives are hard but instead of selling drugs or something like this or, or, or stealing from somebody these people may work regular nine to fives to work their way through college or you know things like that or save up money take up a trade uh, get a trade skill class these are the ones we really need to work on because they they are the ones that showing that real fortitude that we need because they're going through the meat grinder and, they, and, and it's tough and they're making it out. We need to get behind all ours, but we need to really get behind those those kids that's really trying to do something productive with themselves, positively productive. Mm-hmm. 
That's so true. And a lot of it gets thrown to the wayside because people see, okay, oh, they got a good head on their shoulders. They're moving forward. They're doing this. They're doing that. So they automatically think, oh, they're strong. They can make it through. And so they don't need my support when actually they still need your support. They need to see that you see them trying and that you're going to support them growing as much as you're supporting the one that needs that extra attention, that needs that push and that goal direction. So it, it's true what you're saying. Everyone needs that support, whether they're strong with or without you, they still need you. Mm -hmm. we, all, we all need somebody because you know, don't nobody make it all alone. You can do most of it, but we all need somebody. I, I didn't make it all alone. It was people that invested in me. When I was in elementary school, I went all the way to elementary school, never had a male teacher period until I got to fifth grade. It was this guy named Mr. Martin, and he was an excellent teacher. He was a young man, too. And he got on our bus when we was in. I got on the basketball team and everything. He got me a part of student council and all that. And it's weird because I, I got kicked out of student council for trying to bully a kid when I was in fifth grade. So I got kicked out of student council. I got kicked off the basketball team because I was making fun of the movie, what's the, uh, Glory. When uh, they was, and it's weird how I transitioned to be so serious about my people today because I was laughing that when they was whooping at us, Crazy as that is. And my teacher got mad. He said, he said, he looked at me, he said, step out the classroom for a minute. <laughs> he said, so I stepped outside the classroom. He told me, he said, I'm sick of your mess. He said, I'm sick of your mess. You kicked off my team. <laughs> and he said that to me in fifth grade. And I wore a straight face, but inside I was like, damn, man. Because <laughs> he finally got tired of my mess. He kicked my butt off the team and didn't allow me back on it. And, and that helped me. And the weird thing is that, uh, I remember we were 3-0, we were 3-0, and they lost uh, the last uh, three out of the four games. And I remember okay. when they won that last game, I didn't know nothing about it because I, I wasn't on the team no more. They announced on the PA, like, your Lindsay Road Runners made the playoffs. They everybody started clapping, and I didn't clap because I was hating like a mug. <laughs> <laughs> you got rid of me, Coach. I was in hate mode. I was hoping they didn't make the playoffs. I, I know what I'm saying? Because <laughs> I, I got kicked off the team and acting up, but – I remember uh, even at the end of the season, he told me, go go upstairs. Your, your teacher got something for you and still gave me a trophy at the end, man. I was like, that was dope because I was on because I was on that team. And I remember uh, uh, my parents going up there trying to get him to let me back on the team. He's like, no, I, I gave him too many chances, man. I gave him too many chances. I ain't letting him back on this team. He know better. He, he's too smart for that. And I remember uh, in the end, he said, do y'all think he can get to academy school? He said, he can go to anywhere. He can get to any academy school. All you got to do is just stop playing. He just got to be serious. He know better, man. He got the potential, potential out of this world. And that's like, and it's, and you know, me. I reconnected with my teacher from fifth grade, Mr. Martin, this year. I gave him my book and I taught him, I told him what he meant to me and how he inspired me, man. You know, he, we've been, we've been connected since then. And I just told him, like, you really, you really helped me, man. I really appreciate everything you did for me because we need that. We need, we need tough love. We need, we need soft love, but we need tough love as well. Mm-hmm. So let's um let's discuss this book, Black Boy Rise. Let's get into that. Okay. What was your purpose for this book? And you know, talk a little bit. Let's, I'm gonna let you tell your story on your book. Okay, cool. Now, uh, Black Boy Rise, uh, I guess it got to the point where, when I was a youth counselor, uh, I got exposed to some things with those boys that, as hard as it was for me coming up. I was like, I kind of had it easy compared to some of them. 
actually how somebody tell me that they love me on the daily, like my mom did, and like my mom still do. It, it, it's we don't know how fortunate how fortunate we are. We have that because some of those kids have people who have never told them they love them. Some of those boys have been molested. Some have been raped. Some of them had committed rapes. Uh, some of them was in there for murder. But some of them, it was, so the ages when it was like 12 to 21, when I was working as a youth counselor, I was on the trauma pod and I found out about mental illnesses I had never heard of dealing with those boys. Like a significant number of them were, on, were chemically dependent on pills and stuff like that. And uh, I remember encouraging those boys in there and uh, those young men in there. And uh, I was amazed at some of their stories. Like, I was like, wow, man, some of the things I heard, like some of those boys were sitting there from 12 to 21. And that was, I mean, that was the age range, 12 to 21. So some of them were waiting to turn 21 to decide to find out they were going to go to prison for the rest of their life or where they were going to be able to go home. It was a 12 year old in there for attempted murder on his parents. Uh, it was just layers and layers upon trauma in there. And I remember talking with some of the young men in there. One young man was worried about what his uh, child's mother was going to be outside doing. Because you had, uh, some of them had kids in there. And they were seeing some of them had kids. And I remember being honest with them because he was already exposed to them. I said, sometimes when you have a lady, I say, if you're locked up, sometimes she won't deal with another guy, uh, depending on how long you locked up. I said, sometimes they'll deal with a guy physically while you locked up and when you get out there, cut it out. And I said, sometimes they'll deal with a guy physically while you locked up. And when you get out, they'll still be dealing with him and you. And I said, sometimes they'll leave you. And that's just the truth. I said, but you can't really put yourself, or you can't wrap yourself up into a person like that. You can't wrap yourself up to a woman like that. I said, you gotta have a purpose and a reason for living. I said, my mama told me that you could be in love with a woman, madly in love with a woman. And she may wake up one day and decide she don't want to be with you no more. And I said, and that's just the reality of that that could happen. And, and the same thing applies to the same thing applies to young women. But working with them, some of them didn't have nobody to really care for them. So they was wrapped up into like the young ladies they was dealing with. And they was talking about like, if anybody messed with my child's mother, I would kill them. I said, no, you don't want to do that. You know, you know, you got to find a purpose for living. You know, you know, you killing them, uh, they ain't gonna really do nothing. If you kill the guy and you locked up, and she's out there, she's still gonna be living her life while you living in the prison cell. Or even if you uh, do kill both of them, I mean, you still gonna be in prison. Or you kill yourself. I'm like, come on, you got to find a purpose outside. You got to find a reason to live. And I was really trying to inspire those young men because it, it don't matter how much you. Uh, try to encourage them. If, if they don't have a purpose for living, it, it, it's not going to do anything. They got to have a goal and a reason for living this life. If you can, you can talk to them, you can try to educate them, but if they don't have a reason for living, it, it's, it's, it ain't going to be no, no reason. You can't help them. So it was important to find, try to find a purpose. And I remember getting real close with this one youth. He had potential. I said, I said, man, you don't have to be uh, out here robbing people and breaking in people's houses because you already got skills, you got, you got a skill tray, you can do put up drywall and all this type of stuff. You can paint, you don't have to be out there doing it. You got a skill, you can feed yourself for life. I was like, you don't want your son to grow the way you grew up, you know, and, and be without a dad like you were. So I was just letting them know like, and if you're breaking into these people's houses, you know, sometimes you, you know, you put your family's life in danger because they'll come at you and they can't get you, sometimes they'll get your family. You know, and I, and I said, that's the reality of your family going back to their family. Then all y'all, you know, it's a whole problem. Uh, 
you know, like zip codes getting wiped out possibly because it could be that serious, you know, everybody attacking, attacking, and nobody wants to look like a punk. Nobody wants to give in. As I was telling you, said I was always breaking down and encouraging them. I mean, some of them had talent, man. Some of them, some of them were uh, dyslexic, dyslexic, but could, could play chess real good, could draw real good. And so they had a lot. Of, it was a lot of talent. Some of them could rap. It was a lot of talent in there. But the one youth I got real close to, it, and I was trying to encourage him to do all that. Last year, he was on my mind, very, very heavy. And uh, the weird thing is, when I eventually had to leave that youth, youth uh, the the facility because it got. It got too depressing for me because I was mm-hmm. going home and I was I was taking that with me like man I got to go in today I can't focus on home because I'm worried about the trauma I'm dealing with in there, you know because it was very I had to deal with kids trying to fight me and all kind of stuff in there you know calling you names and so it, it takes a lot and I always want to be the best role model to them, but I remember uh, eventually leaving there and I'm letting them know the youth I was real close to so his name was James. I let him know I'm about to get up out of here. I said, man, you still do good. You encourage yourself, man. I, I just got to get up out of here, you know, for me, for my own mental health purposes. Like, because I don't want to have, you know, everybody got a boiling point. Everybody got a breaking point. If somebody keep cussing at you or doing all this, you never know what you might do eventually. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, and, and not because you you got a bad attitude. It's just human. You know, if somebody will keep bothering you, you know, you might, wow. And then you wake up like, well, you wake up, you come to it like, what, what was I thinking? I, I didn't know what I was. I didn't know I would do that. I didn't think I would do that, but it happened. So I, I just, uh, it's time for me to leave and I left. But last year he was on my mind real heavy and I uh, looked looked up his name. I put in his name the first thing on Google and the first thing that popped up was obituary. And I was I, I was real devastated about it. I was like, wow, man. Cause he, he didn't even uh, live, see 18. He got killed by another teenager and a teenager that killed him actually went to the facility I used to work at. You know, so I was like, wow, man. So his, his son's growing up now without his dad. And I was like, man, I, I like, it was just, it was real, real disheartening for me to, you know, work there. But what made me want to share my story is that I knew that I wasn't alone. You know, I grew and I saw with so many people that was going through what I was going through. So many young men, so many young black men going through what I was going through. And I said, I got to put this out there because it's probably helped them in a way, kind of like probably how. Malcolm's book helped me because it's more up to more up to date. It's a modern thing, you know. It's written in uh, the language that we speak in, you know. It's it's written written well, but written in language that language, that language they can understand. And uh, so I just want to share my story with the world and let these young men know they're not alone, and that if I can make it out, you know, they can do the same as well. If I can share my story, and it can help them. Then I, then I want to do that, you know, and then I feel this is my purpose in, in life really to to help young black men in particular, you know, know this an, get to the other side of life. We know what the ugly side is like. We know what the bad side is like. I want to make sure we can get to the other side and see the, see the beauty in life. Right. So I have a question. <laughs> I'm curious to know um, how hard was it to write and publish a book? Like, it was it um, anything that almost made you want to give up, or like, how was that process for you? I would say uh, writing the book, like writing my story, because because it's a rev- relatively short read. My book is 165 pages, uh, so. Writing the book, I would say, took a, a couple months, like just just the writing part. But uh, 
you know, of course, you know, you, I had an editor and, you know, going through editing and all those things you can improve here, you can improve there, you know, that, that prolonged it. Uh, so I would say, uh, really, I say the, the writing part was, was really easy. And then, I, then I'm a writer and I like to write. So it might be different for somebody who, who don't like to write or who, who's not a writer. But for me, I love it. And for me, it's therapeutic. So for me, it took only a couple months. Like some days I can write one page. Some days I might only write a paragraph. Some days it might just spill out of me and I'll be writing 10 pages. You know, so, but I, you know, so some days I might just be thinking you know, about what I'm gonna say and all that. So, so it, no, no, no two days were the same, exactly the same, you know, but I just stayed at it and I was persistent. And I said, this is a goal and I'm gonna complete it. But, uh, you know, so it, it was prolonged, like working with uh, the editor, you know, because, you know, they work with other people. So that's what took you longer to really get, get published. And me, because I'm sort of a, of a perfectionist in the sense that I want to put out quality work. Not like, you know, I think everything's supposed to be perfect, but like quality work. I want to put out quality because it's books people have published, but you can't go through the books because there's so many errors in it or misspelled mm. words. You know, that's tough. So I made, I want to make sure I put out something that was quality. So I probably added a, a couple more months on to it. And so, so for me, I, I would say uh, it, 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 it was more, I wouldn't say it was, it was hard because it's passion, because it's my passion. I say it, uh, it was kind of, it could be kind of tedious in a way because you, uh, you write and you put in that work and then you try to see what the editor thinks about your work. And then me, I'm gonna read, any any changes the editor make, I'm gonna check myself because I was <laughs> a I'll make sure I you know I'm gonna read over what they what they uh, recommend too, and I did that a lot. So it was like a little bit back and forth, but uh, I, I wouldn't say it was hard for me. Now what I'm finding harder is like uh, now because I'm writing my uh, new book and it's it's not just my life story. It's something that's coming just from creativity, like my own mind's eye. So that part is harder because it's not just my life story. You know, my life story, you know, I got that from memory. So this is a, a, a little harder, but you know, the same thing really, really applies for me. Some days I'm able to write a lot, sometimes a little, some days I just think and may jot down some ideas, but the, the, the key is, is just the long game, really just sticking it out. You know, understand not that I'm gonna get this done no matter what, you know, no matter how long it takes, I'm committed to finishing this. I'm committed to this work. Right. Well, that is commendable for sure. Just not only to say, hey, I'm going to write a book, but to actually stick with it. Uh, I definitely feel like um, us as a community, our writers are under, you know, underplayed and undervalued. And then people feel like, okay, to be an African-American author, you have to write, you know, these grungy kind of thugged out love stories mm -hmm. like oh there's mm -hmm. other authors that are african-american who create other content than you know just thug life you know romances which is fine and dandy but i mean there are other people out here that you know contribute to the literature so kudos for you for doing that that's right sister you, you so right on that because sometimes it's like <laughs> if, you, if you're like a market saturation and stuff like that that's kind of like the uh, the movies you see made in the hood all the time the little hood movies always some drug stuff 
<laughs> you know, I was like, like, I mean, how many of these, how many of these we need? I mean, I ain't knocking your hustle, no, like, like, come on, we need so, so some other stuff, so some creativity, you know, come. and that's what I wanted to come from a different angle because, like, this new book, you know, I, I ain't gonna speak too much on it because it's very, very, I'm very in the very early stages of, of writing it, but it, it's gonna, it's gonna show a different side, you know, it's gonna show people, it's gonna speak on some Detroit stuff a lot, you know, it's gonna, people ain't never been in Detroit, will probably see what it's like to live there. But it, but it, but it's still a real story. It's still, it's gonna have uh, some socially redeeming things about it. Yeah, as always, anything I'm gonna do. So, I, I think, uh, you know, we're gonna be, I'm gonna be in contact with you all. You know, so uh, you know, you, you'll know about it for sure. Absolutely. We appreciate you, you know, taking time out your busy schedule to come on this show in this segment and talk about your life, your book, things that inspire you, things that you really got to, you know, turn a tragedy into triumph-based story. Mm-hmm. But I just love it because our listeners need to learn that, you know, we all go through things that can either make you or break you. Mm-hmm. But just knowing someone as a pivotal role model still in the world, you know, making a difference, I admire your courage and your strength, and I wish you many blessings, brother. I appreciate it, man. Thank you. I wish you the same. I really appreciate it, bro, for you all for having me on your show. Thank you so much. And it has truly been a blessing to hear your story and also so motivational to say, hey, you know, to our listeners and even to us as well. It's like no matter what you live through, you can turn it around. Hey, that same moment you can say, no, I want to change and I want to do different and do better. So thank you for that motivation and thank you for your time. All right. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been another segment of the Who They Want podcast show. Y'all tune in for the next one. We're out, ladies and gentlemen.